0: Entity or a Chinese partner, spend time there. Go meet with them. Eat, break bread with them. You have to break bread with them. You have to gumbei, which is taking a shot with them. You have to. You have to do all of the things, the ritual things that are part of the culture, and and allow them to feel as though they have more of a connection to you than a phone call and a piece of paper. And then you find that in doing that, specifically with China.
1: Today on the show, I've got Carl Almar. Carl, thanks hey, for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So let's do just a quick, a quick background on you. And then I've got a bunch of questions. Can you talk about being a CEO and then, you know, the digital ocean from 10 people to the kind of valuations they've got today and what you're doing at M13?
0: Sure. Sure. I mean, I might as well go back and, and just give you kind of a few seconds at the very beginning. So I actually I grew up in the UK and, and studied engineering at Imperial College. So I came to the US with an engineering degree and kind of all the gusto in the nineties of kind of want to conquer the world like everybody else does. So it took me a couple of years to found my first company, but I found my first company in '97 back in the dot com boom of the day, and uh, and ended up exiting, selling the company in 2000. Stayed with them for a year, and then went and did an MBA. After my MBA, I found another company again as CEO's fintech business. Uh, and around 2004, 2005, we really got off the ground, launched the product in 2006. And then by around 2009, we got to about 140 million in revenue and then sold the company in early 2000. After that, I, I floated around, made some, some investments and the like, you know, angel investments sat on boards, you know, worked with, first time I'd really started working with kind of a portfolio of different founders and stuff. But ultimately that led me to an introduction to Ben Yuretsky, who is the Co-founder and CEO of Digilocean, which is at that point was kind of just launching its first product in the very early stages of figuring out what it wanted to be in the world. And um the premise of the introduction was that they had a really promising potential business, but not necessarily all the foundational kind of business capabilities to build the infrastructure that's needed to make this thing work. And so I worked with them for two, three months to help them really build that and get their first round of institutional investment tied up and, and kind of solidified. Uh, and then once that happened, it was pretty clear that first of all, DigitalOcean had found something special. I, I figured that out. And and secondly, that they really needed me as much as I wanted to be with them. And so I joined as COO and kind of worked alongside Ben and the rest of the team to, to build the business. And so when I first joined, as you said, it was Ragtag, You know, I remember my, literally the first few days I went in, Ben had an office and next to the office was this adjunct little mini library closet thing. And I kind of just set up my desk in there and just helped him out by sitting in the library and, or the closet or whatever you'd want to call it. And then obviously from there, just building bit by bit, we really built an incredible machine over the following five and a half to six years, got the business up to about 250 million run rate. 500 plus employees, and then ultimately it's gone public this year, and is trading at about a 10 billion dollar valuation. So, pretty good outcome ultimately, and, and being there from the ground up is just such an enlightening and kind of exciting, you know, nostalgic history to, to reminisce on. So after DigitalOcean, you know, in, in the previous two companies, I was given the opportunity to join another pair of brothers, Culture and Coenium, to help build out the second fund in you know early stage investment firm that they were starting uh, or they had established essentially called m13 so i came on as a managing partner alongside them we launched fund two and then since then we've you know successfully deployed fund fund two now investing fund three fund three looks like it's around a 350 million dollar fund we're just closing out the fundraise but it's a bit of subscribed to might end up a little bit higher maybe closer to 400 million as a fund so now i get to work with a whole bunch of really exciting founders in their own right i'm just constantly you know, excited every day, similar to, I guess, the conversation you have on, on this podcast. I'm just excited every day by the innovation, the creativity, the passion that, you know, I see in, in everybody I get to work with every day. So it's, it's pretty exciting.
1: Oh, that, that is exciting. So if this fund three was to hit 400, what is that total AUM for, for M13?
0: So fund fund one was a smaller fund. It was about $90 million. Fund two is 188. So this one would take us to somewhere in the range of 750.
1: Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, let's go back. Um, tell me again, China export finance. What did that get to for run rate?
0: So the the booked revenue in the final year before we exited was 137 million in revenue. So that was the booked revenue. Okay. It was lesser. It wasn't an ARR business as such because it wasn't annuity. It wasn't repeatable. We were having a book revenue every. Something I learned in that process about how to build the next one but but we were basically booking transactions through this finance solution and we just had a you know series of customers they all had their their credit allocations and then they would start booking transactions into the into the platform and that's how we operated so 137 million in yeah. 2009 was was the peak
1: well i'm interested and and did you start that from scratch or where were they at when you when you cuz so you were I, a co-founder weren't you
0: so that yeah that business So I came out of business school and like any other entrepreneur, I was kind of hanging around thinking, what's the next opportunity? What am I going to do now? I was kind of playing with a few different ideas. I had a, actually a childhood friend from high school that had been really successful, built a, actually a fish business in the UK. And at that time had built it to about a billion dollars in revenue. It was a low margin business, but it was high volume business. And they did most of their um, processing in China. So, they were, and this was in the mid two thousands, early to mid two thousands, when it was a very much more antiquated environment in China, especially the financial environment. Obviously, it's it's changed significantly since then. And so, I you know just in talking with him amongst the million other conversations I was having. He was consistently telling me about this strain and this and this trouble he was having as his business was growing on how to actually manage the financing of his manufacturers because there was no mature financing tools out there. Everything had to be paid with deposit. Everybody, you know, everything kind of was really, if you had to get a letter of credit, it was an old antiquated system of, of kind of guaranteeing payment. And so, you know, there must be a better solution. And obviously being kind of the entrepreneur and a little bit of a creative of sorts, you start to get okay how can we solve that problem there must be a way to solve that problem so we began to innovate on a lot of things that actually have become commonplace i'd say today one of them is the electronic signature on a on a financial document so no one had proven that that was actually sustainable in court and we went and got legal opinions and stuff to prove that we can actually build a digital signature solution which allowed us to execute on debt transactions. Then we built this unique construct. We called it, it was a bill of exchange construct. Bill of exchange is this 100-year-old document that was used for trade, which is essentially non-disputable and underwritable. So we were able to figure out how to create an electronic bill of exchange, 100-year-old documents that never happened before, and then get it supported by AIG, was underwrote all of our business, and then all the syndicated banks we pulled together that got behind that and said, okay, we trust this construct. So we created a whole bunch of really new, innovative ways to provide a financing solution for people who were sourcing out of China, and ultimately, we were able to get a factoring license in China, which we were the first non-bank to be able to ever do that. So. It felt like we really broke down a lot of barriers in the process. It was like an exciting process. I spent so much time in China during that time. Learned so much about the culture. And and ultimately, as soon as we were actually able, it took us a year or two to get it into market and get all these things done. But as soon as we got it into market, it just, you know, the demand was through the roof. Happy to go into what happened during the financial crisis, but that's a whole, obviously, kind of, you can imagine the dramatic aspect <laughs> of, of the business during that period as well. But we did survive through it. We did continue to grow and it kind of, created the opportunity for us to find a, an acquirer and actually exit the business in early 2010.
1: Well, I, I have a bunch of questions about this. I, I think one of the first ones, I really, this is a question I've asked a number of entrepreneurs who've done the like zero to hundred million dollar plus revenue <laughs> stretch there. I'm interested for you if you feel like there's any natural breakpoints. like the business really changes. You know, after 100 grand in revenue, after 10 million in revenue, after 40, 40 million in revenue, like, where do you feel like some of the, the natural, I don't know, evolutions, like you graduate to the next level of business? Do you, do you feel like there are 100%. kind of breakpoints or not so much?
0: Yeah, absolutely. 100% there are. And, and they reflect on a lot of different aspects of the company. So the, the biggest thing is the, the organizational structure and the, and the culture associated with that. And it's something I've actually talked about, you know, done a bunch of talks on this. But I, I saw it even more in DigitalOcean than I saw it in ChinaX for Finance. But I did see it in China for Finance as well. Mm. So interestingly enough, with China for Finance, you know, I mentioned in uh, DigitalOcean was kind of working out of a little kind of library slash closet to start ChinaX for Finance. I kind of put myself in the corner of my friend's uh, office and just found this little corner kind of like hubby spot, same kind of thing. And just started hacking away at how's this thing going to work for, for me. The, the break point there was really actually putting a product out. It was a, such a, it was a, the process of getting this whole thing worked out was very third party. So it was really much, very much me driving it, maybe a couple of support people, but it was about getting, the, the legal structure correct, getting the underwriting structure correct, getting the banks in line. And it was a lot of just process and just very tight small team getting that done, which is not necessarily the case when you're talking about a technology business and definitely different to what we did at DigitalOcean. But for, for China's World Finance, the break point was we put the product out in the market. We, we set up a China office to actually manage the China side of it. And immediately as we, as we saw take on from customers, all the operational uh, needs of the business started right away. So immediately we went from probably sub 10 people to like 30, 40 people within three months. And that was probably the first breakpoint. And what I always kind of see as the first break point is when you can talk to everybody in your company every day and you have a tu- you touch them every single day, then your ethos of culture, everything that you think about around how you want to build your team and how you want to build your dynamic, is very easy to manage because you have those touch points and you can see everything. When the first break point you get to 30, 40, 50 people, you suddenly realize you're not talking to everybody every day anymore. Now you have to rely on certain key lieutenants. You know, I had a managing director in Shanghai who ran the Chinese team, but you have to figure out how can you continue to deliver the culture and the, and the work ethic and the dynamic that you want through these lieutenants rather than directly. And that begins to, changes the way you communicate changes the way you you know create transparency across the organization like there's a lot of things that really really have to change to accommodate that evolving structure as we go you know more so in DigitalOcean, we kind of grew in my time to like 500 people so then the next breakpoint was probably around 100 people so you're still in this kind of uh flat-ish hierarchy sub 100 like you have maybe a couple of key leaders but the teams are very flat and organized, and, and kind of just deployed on very specific uh, subjects and you know subject matter. When, when you get to a hundred or so people, now you start thinking about much more layering in the organization. You have to give like great engineers their due and give them you know the high leveling. We we went through somewhat of a culture crisis in DigitalOcean where where we didn't do that we got to 100 people and we had this this kind of cloud of engineers and skilled people and everybody was sitting there saying well i'm not like that person and what am i you know where should i be focused and how do you what's the pecking order and all this stuff and you start thinking about much more structure and then with that again you have to think about how the culture retains like do you have someone that owns culture and how do they then communicate that with the with the rest of the organization so there's definitely breakpoints operationally i i absolutely see those and there's obviously other breakpoints in the business but i think the operational ones are the things that would hit a founder first those are the first challenges that a founder would face
1: well and i want to talk a lot more about digital ocean and about but going back either clearview or china export finance what were some of your what were some of your biggest takeaways that you've kept relying as your career has progressed since those experiences Yeah, it's a great question. I think the biggest
0: thing is surrounding yourself with the right people. And I think the first part is uh, what's interesting about both those environments is with Clearview, I went through the the bubble in two thousand, the burst of the bubble and all the drama that, that you know that ensued as a result of that and kind of the, the capital shortages and kind of all of the problems we, we were lucky that we were able to actually exit and sell the business at that point, but then all the decisions that had to be made to get us to that point. And then with China for Finance, the, the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. And just seeing AIG almost go under, seeing half our banks close their books, seeing our customers suffering and getting, you know, tight on credit, all again, incredibly strenuous situations for an individual to take totally on their shoulders. In China for Finance, I was blessed with an incredible board of mentors and, and professionals that just were there supporting and providing incredibly sound advice. I don't think I had that at Clearview. So Clearview, I had to like hash through the mess and I was getting bad advice after bad advice. And it would, in retrospect, just what felt like very selfish perspectives from different people rather than things that were holistically good for the business or good for the outcome of what we were trying to do. And, and I just realized that I did not put good people around myself. I kind of put the people around me out of necessity rather than putting people around me that I felt would be there at the right, you know, with the right attitude at the right time. With China School Finance, we got through the, the, that kind of three, four month death period because I had an incredibly qualified and incredibly capable board. And every one of them was ready to pick up the phone, make phone calls, even kind of ante up and participate in a, in a bridge round and do whatever needed to happen because they believed in what we were building and, and the team that was building it and that was you know that was incredibly incredibly valuable i learned a lot from them i gained a lot of confidence from them you know they kept me very very calm and in the right place such that we could go into the next year i think we did like 80 something maybe 86 million dollars worth of business in 2018 and then in 19 we did 137 so you, the only reason we were able to see that kind of growth through that trauma was because it was such a solid support mechanism and i think kind of related to that What I also learned is calmness in the face of drama is such a powerful skill and such a powerful tool being able to, you know, I've seen so often founders or executives make knee jerk decisions based upon what's happening in front of them right at that moment, rather than taking a breath and saying, Hey, let's, let's take, let's be calm and make the best logical decision. And, and I found that always try and minimize the emotional component of these decisions, of your big business decisions. Everyone's emotional. You can't help it. But as long as you make sure that logic shines through the emotion and you ultimately make the best logical decision for your business, then you're going to be making the right decisions. And those are the best ways to navigate through a crisis. So I'd say those are probably the biggest things I learned, I learned at those companies. And so much more that I learned, obviously, at DigitalOcean. One thing I will yeah. also say, which is kind of funny anecdote is, you know, I started uh, Clearview when I was, I think, 24 years old. And so for me, it, I didn't know anything, you know, I didn't have a business degree or anything like that. I literally was just an engineer. I came from this kind of engineering sales job and decided I was going to start a company with, with three other co-founders. And they put me in the CEO role between the four of us and, and I was kind of Given the responsibility to run this thing, and and I did everything through probably gusto and just determination, and we got through, and we got an exit, and we did we did pretty well out of it all. But then I went to business school, and for the first six months, pretty much every class I was in was like an aha moment of oh my god, that's what they were talking about, (laughs) that's what they meant when they were when they were saying this or when they were showing me this chart or when they were showing me this graph and And everything started to become clear and and I began to understand like a lot of the fundamentals that I was really missing in in that first business.
1: Sound like sound like pretty important lessons for all of us. You know, something kind of related, kind of a tangent from your from China export finance. I've questioned, you know, knowing how much things have evolved, you know, in the last fifteen years there. You know, advice for those of us who are trying to do business now, you know, at at Greystoke Investments right now, one of our big pushes, is developing a big portfolio of like tiny house adventure cabins for like action sports people, you know, Mm -hmm. on the water at Puget Sound in Washington or up near Jackson Hole or Park City or these kind of like exciting places. Right. And we keep looking at, you know, buying entire tiny homes from China or those geodesic domes or, you know, like really interesting kind of unique stay type structures, um, Knowing that things have progressed, but but that there still are things that are unique to doing business there. What kind of advice do you have for people like us who are trying to be smart about maybe starting to work with China for the first time?
0: Yeah, I, I think one thing I really learned about China, I kind of knew already I had the experience when I before I even started uh, Clearview in the mid-90s, was... You know, working in foreign territories is all about understanding the culture of those foreign territories. I think a lot of people in the US will go do business with China and, and expect everything to be the way it is in the US. And you that's just not what you get. You know, you and and if you do expect that, then you're seen as kind of a bull in a china shop or kind of a US bully that, that is trying to get things done their way, and that's just not the way that you know Chinese business people think or work. And so I'd say if, if a main component of your business really depends on the performance of a Chinese entity or a Chinese partner, spend time there. go meet with them, eat, break bread with them. You have to break bread with them. You have to gum bay, which is taking a shot with them. You have to, you have to do all of the things, the ritual things that are part of the culture and, uh, and allow them to feel as though they have more of a connection to you than a phone call and a piece of paper. And then you find that in doing that specifically with China, there is loyalties that can be created that definitely do not exist if, if you don't have that connection. I mean, it is somewhat of a mercenary territory. You, know, you could have the greatest you know, production contractor, manufacturer in the world, and then suddenly they get a bigger, better deal around the corner and they just disappear on you. If they don't feel like they have the connection with you, then they don't, they don't see that as a bad or unethical move. If they do feel like they have a connection with you, then they actually feel like they owe you. And uh, and the, the relationships you can build in that regard are much more reliable, much stronger, they're less likely to take advantage of you, less likely to do things. So I'd say if, if you wanna work in China or really in any foreign territory, but China is such a great example of it, is go and really understand the culture and play into their world so you can get the best out of them. I would even parallel it to building teams. you know in order to build a really great team, you know, you're got to make sure that your individual players are performing at the best of their ability, you know, optimally. So how do you do that? You understand them, you get to know them and you figure out what drives them. You figure out what excites them, you figure out where they can perform and you help lean into that. So it's a, it's a parallel to that. Think about China as just an extension of that. If you don't know the person, then you're never gonna get the best out of them. And so that's, that's just a kind of core piece of advice that perhaps I could provide.
1: No, that's great. Well, this might be a good place to, uh, to end part one of the interview. Maybe we'll end with one of my favorite questions, which is what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received?
0: The, uh, so one of the best pieces of advice, uh, I've received is, I mean, it's probably, there's a bunch of really good advice I've received. So I'm trying to navigate which one's the best, but I think probably the, the, the standard one, which is related, and I'm sure a lot of people have received the same advice and it's a pretty common place at this point, but You know hire people that are better than you and then empower them to be the best that they can be but i I find a lot of and i was definitely guilty of this when i was younger you know a lot of young bravado entrepreneurs feel like they know everything and they put people around them that you know end up just being yes people and end up just kind of following their lead and not necessarily bringing you know the best to the table even if the best exists in them to me it's you know i want I, i feel like i know a decent amount about everything but not the, I'm not the best at any one thing. So you put the people in that are the best and you really allow them to lead. Like you can set the the direction and, and point the ship in the right way and have the right team to execute it. But at the end of the day, you really just need to make sure that everybody around you makes you better and isn't just a a, a version of saying yes to the things that you're demanding. So yeah, put put the best, put people around you that are better than you at the things that they do and and then do everything you can to optimize their performance. I think that's the ultimate secret to success.
1: You know, I'm interested in that. When you think about what it takes to get the top talent in your space, to want to come join your team, what's any lessons or what, what are things that have been effective for you?
0: I think, you know, you're probably gonna hear this theme a lot. I think people want to feel like you know them and people want to feel like you understand what they're looking for and that your vision aligns with what they're looking for. So if you're truly recruiting like your leaders and the best people, then, you know, have a real understanding of who they are and what they want and make sure that actually aligns with the business you're trying to build and then present the business in that light so that they can kind of see the vision from their lens. Second step to the process is once you've hired those excellent people, those people are your leverage to get the, the rest of the team which will be as you know will be limited by the quality of that first hire. So I think the combination of those two strategies ultimately gets you to kind of the optimal team that you need.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Well, listen, if people want to connect with you, where are the place, best places online to follow what you're doing or connect with you?
0: So I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. You can follow me or just uh, message me on LinkedIn, Carl Alamar on LinkedIn. That's K A R L for anyone who who spells it the the other way. But uh, yeah, Carl Almar on LinkedIn, and that's probably where I'll post most of my thoughts and, and kind of pieces and things that I see around that I find interesting.
1: That's great. Okay, everybody, uh, go connect with Carl on LinkedIn and uh, tune back in for part two. I've got a bunch more questions for Carl. Thanks, everyone.